When you look at longevity science, most of it's based on animal research. Physiologically speaking, cats are not small dogs. Dogs are not small people. Genetics is an incredibly complicated thing and there's an awful lot that goes on behind the curtain. Diet, exercise, and lifestyle. How do you set up your pet's day-to-day -day living in such a way that it promotes longevity? And most veterinarians do not get a whole lot of nutrition education in school. Those raw food diets have been naturally grain-free forever, and there has not been a problem with DCM with those foods. Welcome to the Melanie Avalon Biohacking Podcast, where we meet the world's top experts to explore the secrets of health, mindset, longevity, and so much more. Are you ready to take charge of your existence and biohack your life? This show is for you. Please keep in mind, we're not dispensing medical advice and are not responsible for any outcomes you may experience from implementing the tactics lying herein. Are you ready? Let's do this. Welcome back to the Melanie Avalon Biohacking Podcast. Oh my goodness, friends, pet lovers, this episode is for you. I learned so much about taking care of our furry friends, specifically cats and dogs, reading Dr. Gary Richter's books, Longevity for Dogs and Longevity for Cats. And first of all, we will be doing a book giveaway for this one. So if you would like to win a copy of his books, go to my Instagram, comment on the Friday announcement post, something that resonated with you to enter to win a copy of his books. And you can also enter in my Facebook group. That Facebook group is IF Biohackers, Intermittent Fasting plus Real Foods plus Life. Just check out the pinned announcement post at the top of the group to enter. You can also use the coupon code HEALTHYPET40 to get 40% off site-wide at Dr. Richter's site, which is ultimatepetnutrition.com. And then just get excited for this episode because we talk about so many things. We talk about the best food to feed your pets, whether or not your pets should be intermittent fasting, how to transition your pets to a different diet, which can be a little bit tricky. And Dr. Richter has all the tips for that. We talk about the grain-free controversy and what happened with that, the future of wearables for pets, supplements like rapamycin, berberine, and spermidine for pets, and so much more. I can't wait to hear what you guys think. Definitely check out the show notes. Those will be at melanieavalon.com slash longevity for pets. Those show notes will have a full transcript as well as links to everything that we talked about. And then again, to win a signed copy of the book, check out my Friday announcement post on Instagram as well as in my Facebook group. I have a very exciting announcement, friends. I have officially launched a TikTok channel. I've been on Instagram for a while, but it is time for TikTok. And with the channel, I'm going to be posting daily, very high quality, awesome biohacking content, tips and tricks, things from my life. And I really want to bring the glam to biohacking because I feel like biohacking can be very male centric or focused on a certain type of person. And I just want to break that stereotype and bring all the sparkles. So please join me there. My handle is Melanie Avalon official. Please let me know what you'd like to see from me, what you think of the content. I do feel pretty shy about it. So please join me so that we can be friends and just go on the most epic biohacking adventure. Okay, friends, spirulina update. It is still coming. I know it's been taking a while. It's just because I want to make the most ideal spirulina tablets on the market. 
ones that are tested for purity and potency and to be free of all pesticides and just the highest quality. So we've got that spirulina source. It tastes awesome. The issue we're experiencing is that in order to make it into tablets, it requires another ingredient. If you're currently taking spirulina tablets and they say they are one ingredient, they are not one ingredient. There is something in there that is helping to keep that structure. So we're trying to figure out which route to go with this. It's really fun because I keep trying different samples. I think I know which one I like the most, but we'll see which one I end up picking. Either way, I really love the taste of our spirulina. It doesn't taste fishy or LGE, and I really experienced the benefits. So stay tuned for that. In the meantime, you can get my other Avalon X supplements at avalonx.us. Friends, have you jumped on the serapeptase bandwagon yet? That's what I launched with, and to this day, it continues to be my most favorite supplement ever. It's a proteolytic enzyme created by the Japanese silkworm. When you take it in the fasted state, it actually breaks down non-living problematic proteins in your body, so it can help address an array of issues. Like I said, it will clear your sinuses, calm inflammation, it may help reduce cholesterol. Studies have shown it can break down amyloid plaque, it can help alleviate pain, and so much more. I take it daily. It is one of the most important supplements in my arsenal. This is the new year. Start it off right. Get some serapeptase. You can get 10% off with the coupon code Melanie Avalon, as well as a 20% off code when you text Avalon X to 877-861-8318. That's Avalon X to 877-861-8318. Those codes will also work with my fantastic partner, MD Logic Health. For that, go to melanieavalon.com slash mdlogic. And of course, all of my supplements I formulated to be the very best on the market. They're tested multiple times for heavy metals and mold. They're free of all common allergens as well as problematic fillers, which goes back to that whole spirulina formulation issue I was talking about. They come in glass bottles to help prevent leaching of plastics into ourselves and the environment. And we even use the minimal amount of stickiness required for the labels to help with our environmental impact. To get these fantastic products, go to avalonx.us and definitely get on my email list so that you don't miss the Spirulina launch special. For that, go to avalonx.us slash email list. Another resource for you guys if you struggle with food sensitivities like I do, you have got to get my app, Food Sense Guide. It's a comprehensive catalog of over 300 foods for 11 potentially problematic compounds. These include things you may be reacting to, like gluten, lectins, FODMAPs, histamine, oxalates, sulfites, thiols, whether or not something is a nightshade, and so much more. It even includes autoimmune paleo AIP status. You can learn about the compounds, create your own list to share and print, and finally take charge of your food sensitivities. It is a top Apple app, often in the top 10 for the Apple food and drinks charts. And friends, get it now because I'm going to be updating it to a subscription basis soon. So you definitely want to get grandfathered in for life at one super low price. With the subscriptions, by the way, I'm going to be implementing some pretty cool features. So I need to do subscriptions to help support that. So like I said, get it now before we change to subscriptions. You can get it at melanieavalon.com slash foodsenseguide. And one more thing before we jump in. Did you know there are over a thousand compounds found in conventional skincare and makeup in the U.S. 
that have been banned in Europe due to their toxicity. If you are using conventional skincare makeup, you are directly putting into your bloodstream toxic compounds, including obesogens, which can literally cause your body to store and gain weight. So if your diet's not working, you might want to think about what's happening with your skincare makeup, as well as carcinogens linked to cancer. I'm not making this up and just endocrine disruptors in general, which mess with our hormones. Thankfully, there's an easy solution to this. There's a company called Beauty Counter, and they were founded on a mission to change this. Every single ingredient is extensively tested to be safe for your skin, so you can truly feel good about what you put on, and their products really work. I am obsessed with their overnight resurfacing peel, their vitamin C serum, they have shampoo and conditioner, skincare lines for every skin type, and incredible makeup. It's so amazing that Tina Fey actually wore all beauty counter makeup when she hosted the Golden Globes. So yes, it is high definition camera ready. You can shop with me at beautycounter.com slash Melanie Avalon and use the coupon code cleanforall20 to get 20% off site-wide. You can get the latest updates from me, specials, sales, samples, and so much more on my email list. That's at melanieavalon.com slash clean beauty. And you can join me in my Facebook group, Clean Beauty and Safe Skincare with Melanie Avalon. People share product reviews and their experiences. And I do a giveaway every single week in that group as well. And lastly, if you're thinking of making clean beauty and safe skincare a part of your future, like I have, I definitely recommend becoming a band of beauty member. It's sort of like the Amazon Prime for clean beauty. You get 10 percent back in product credit, free shipping on qualifying orders, and a welcome gift that is worth way more than the price of the year-long membership. It is totally completely worth it. And I'll put all this information in the show notes. An important announcement, friends. My EMF blocking products are coming. Make sure you don't miss the launch special. For that, get on my email list at melanieavalon.com slash EMF email list. EMFs are actually classified by the IARC as a group 2B, possibly carcinogenic to humans. These are such a problem. We are exposed to them through our Wi-Fi, our cell phones, our AirPods, And they are linked to so many health issues, including anxiety, migraines, headaches, even fertility issues. This is such a problem. Thankfully, you can address your EMF exposure. I'm going to help with that with my Avalon X EMF blocking product line. So again, get on my email list at melanieavalon.com slash EMF email list to check that out. All right, without further ado, please enjoy this fabulous conversation with Dr. Gary Richter. Hi friends, welcome back to the show. I am so incredibly excited about the conversation that I'm about to have. So it is about something obviously that I am obsessed with on this show, which is longevity. But for once, it's not longevity in humans, although we probably will talk a lot about longevity in humans in this. It is about longevity for pets, specifically dogs and cats. So I was introduced to Dr. Richter through his agent, I believe, for his two new books, Longevity for Dogs and Longevity for Cats. And so I saw the titles of the book and I immediately was obviously very much down with the subject matter. And then I listened to some podcasts that Dr. Richter had done and they were truly amazing. And then reading the books, oh my goodness, I was so excited because it was really, really a deep, deep dive into the science of aging. Again, a lot of it in humans, because as I'm sure we'll talk about, a lot of the science in pets 
is actually based on human science. There was just so much there that I love learning about. And then beyond that, it's a really practical approach to how to actually address the health span and lifespan of your your dog or your cat. I learned just so much that honestly blew my mind. So I have so many questions. Dr. Richter, thank you so much for being here. Oh, you're so welcome. I'm thrilled to be here. So I have so many questions for you. To just start things off though, could you tell listeners a little bit about your personal story and and your transition, I guess, or your evolution in appreciating the role of longevity in pets. I mean, you're really at the forefront of everything that you talk about in the book. So I'm super curious, even though you talk about it in the book, but I'm super curious how you became so invested in this longevity science for pets. As you've mentioned, I'm a veterinarian. I've been a veterinarian in the San Francisco Bay Area for a little over 25 years. And, you know, a few years after I got out of school and was practicing, you know, I had practiced emergency medicine and general practice. And at that point I had, I I owned a general practice. You know, I was kind of getting to this point professionally where I was in a little bit of a, you know, I was having a, a sort of a little bit of a professional slash personal crisis, if you will, in the sense of what I was seeing was I was seeing where the hard stops were in the medicine that I was practicing. So, you know, I think what a lot of people don't realize if you're not in the medical field is that like many Like many professions, practicing medicine is frequently about following an algorithm. So, you know, if your patient has these symptoms, then you do these tests. And based on those results, you offer these treatments, et cetera, et cetera. And somewhere along the line, you get to the end of the algorithm and there's nothing left to do. And I really never liked having to have the conversation with people, you know, to the extent of, you know what, we've done everything we can do. There's really nothing left take your dog or your cat home and let us know when it's time to say goodbye. I hate having that conversation even now. And what that did was, is it led me to start exploring other avenues of medicine. And that started for me with acupuncture and Chinese medicine and led to chiropractic and herbal therapy. And, you know, before I knew it, you know, I was practicing integrative medicine and really my professional mission had become to look for any legitimate therapeutic modality that I could use to treat my patients and help them live longer and live better. And that turned into a whole nother veterinary practice, holistic veterinary care here in Oakland, you know, turned into hyperbaric oxygen and ozone therapy and regenerative medicine and laser therapy and all kinds of things that are frequently done sort of in the longevity space in humans and the functional medicine space. So, you know, that kind of led me down the path to, you know, both from a professional perspective as a veterinarian, but also personally for my own health to really get interested in this burgeoning science of longevity medicine. You know, quite a number of years ago, I discovered Ray Kurzweil by reading some of his books, you know, and that led me to Peter Diamandis and, 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 you know, Dave Asprey and these sorts of people. And, you know, and I've become very involved you know, in the longevity space in general. And I've really gotten into that both from the perspective of both my own health and my family's health, but also really the question of how can I use this science to treat my patients and help them live longer and live better? Because, you know, the interesting thing about when you look at what's being done in humans, longevity science-wise right now, I mean, quite frankly, very little of that is based on human clinical trials. Most of it's based on animal research, 
there's every reason to kind of pursue that from a veterinary perspective as there is from a human medical perspective. And, and, you know, thus far, I've been very, very pleased with the results that we're having. It's probably a little soon to definitively say we're helping animals live longer, but I'm certainly confident in saying we're helping animals live better. I interviewed Dr. Karen Becker for her book, Forever Dog, on this show as well. I think the first thing we talked about on that show, and it's because she kind of opened it the same way you did, which was... I think there are really high suicide rates in veterinarians because of the the whole euthanasia thing that they go through, which is something that I think a lot of people don't think about. Like it's like the one profession where you actually potentially, I mean, kill your patient, I guess. So, I mean, it's just something I think people don't really appreciate at all. So hearing you talk about that is um, pretty intense. Another comment was the science, the pet longevity science. Because I had a huge question about how much of the science automatically applies to pets or not. And then I was just thinking how interesting it is. That's true about the rodents. So it's kind of like we take the rodent science that we're applying to humans and calling it human science, but then we're applying it back to animals. How directly or appropriately does like rodent science, for example, apply to humans versus pets? or human science to pets? Like, can you just make those transfers automatically? No, you can't. But I mean, you also can't automatically transfer what what is true in a rodent to a human. You know, frankly, if if what you could do in mice, you could do in humans, we would have cured cancer decades ago. But the reality is, is it just doesn't work that way. There's a correlation, but it is not, it is not a direct correlation. And, you know, as, a, uh, as it happens, I mean you know, physiology of a dog or a cat is is probably a lot closer to that of a person than it is to a rodent. But nonetheless, I mean, whenever you're talking about new, new therapeutics, new medical treatments, you always have to, you know, kind of look at these individually and certainly look at them with first and foremost, with an above all do no harm perspective, you know, so it's not just a, oh, well, it works in this species, so we'll do it in that species. But, you know, I mean, and that's, that's the same thing that's going on in human medicine as well. Is there any aspect that, because you just mentioned how dogs and cats may be more similar to humans anyways than rodents. So is there any particular aspect of health that does transfer better than others? Like I know on the flip side in the book, you talk about how like cholesterol and heart disease isn't really an issue in pets. So like that's something where there's like not that, you know, that transfer. Are there some health issues that are more applicable like cancer? Oh yeah. Yeah. I mean, for sure. I mean, I think cancers, you know, cancer is certainly a good one. You know, arthritis is another excellent one. Any kind of orthopedic joint disease, autoimmune conditions. We certainly see heart disease in animals, but frequently it's not the same underpinnings that cause it as it happens in people. So, you know, so dogs and cats as a rule, do not get coronary artery disease. They do not have heart attacks in the same way that people do. So, you know, that's one of those, you know, call that a blessing on a, on a dog or a cat perspective, that at least that's one thing that they don't have to deal with. But, you know, there's an enormous amount of overlap the way these things work. So, I mean, certainly, you know, you know, I used to have a professor at school who was very fond of saying that physiologically speaking, cats are not small dogs. And this is a true statement. And it's also a true statement that dogs are not small people. So you can't just, you can't just track one to the next, 
but there is a lot of overlap. I mean, that Venn diagram, you know, there's, there, there's quite a lot of similarity there. I was wondering about that as well. Like, cause you talk in the book about the history of domesticating cats versus dogs, which I thought was really, really interesting. If you want to tell listeners a little bit about that, I was wondering if there were different implications in that evolution as to their lifespan today. And I guess that's also another, and I'm throwing a lot at you, but that's another good question, which is what historically was the lifespan of cats and dogs compared to what it is today? Yeah, that's a real interesting question. And, and, and it's an interesting way that you asked it because I think that there is a lot of, there's a lot of correlation there. You know, cats, you know, some people would, some people would question whether or not cats are domesticated at all. But I mean, I think, I think that they, I think they are, but not, certainly not to the extent that dogs are. And while maybe, you know, their, their behavior and their personality has sort of been domesticated, their physiology is largely the same as a wild cat. They're still an obligate carnivore, you know, like, you know, biomechanically, they still largely work the same. Whereas if you look at a dog, like a domestic dog, and you compare that dog to its wild ancestor, the wolf, you're looking at a fairly different animal. I mean, clearly there's, there's a lot of similarities between a dog and a wolf, but, you know, undoubtedly the, the single biggest physiologic change is, is their nutritional requirements. So wolves are, wolves are carnivores. They are not as dedicated a carnivore as say a cat would be because wolves will sometimes eat non-meat things, you know, grasses, berries, that sort of thing. But dogs over, you know, somewhere between 10 and 30,000 years, depending on what study you read, dogs have been adapted over all of these eons to survive on a more omnivorous diet. So they are sort of a very different animal in the literal sense than their wolf ancestors. And then furthermore, you know, you take, you take that domesticated dog and then, and then you start branching it off further into all of the various breeds that we have turned dogs into. I was recently in, in Africa with a group called International Veterinary Outreach Treating Dogs. And one of the fascinating things when you go to a place like Africa, all the dogs kind of look the same. They all look like sort of this generic 30-ish pound brown dog because if you let their genetics do what they want to do, that's exactly what a dog wants to be. But of course, you know, here in the, you know, in the Western world, we've turned them into golden retrievers and German shepherds and French bulldogs and, and all of these various things. And along with that, we have, we have without question put a lot of strain on their, on their physiology and, and the way that their bodies are supposed to work. And I think, I think it's unquestionable that we have shortened their lifespan while doing it. You know, I mean, the, you look at the research and, you know, in the 1960s, you know, most dogs were living into their mid-teens, if not longer. You know, these days, your average golden retriever might be living to 10, 11, if you're lucky, 12 years old, because so many of them get cancer, you know, and that's, there's a lot of reasons for, for you know, the elevated rates of cancer and disease in animals. And certainly genetics plays a big part of it. We can't rule out things like diet, environment, you know, medications, these sorts of things. But certainly we've done an awful lot of things to these animals, dogs more than cats, that have changed them in ways that in some ways perhaps have benefited them, although in many ways have not. Okay, this is so fascinating. So with these different breeds, 
is selecting for these different traits, often traits that we just aesthetically appreciated. And so it came at the expense of like health and longevity pathways. Well, you know, so yes, with a caveat, I mean, some of it's aesthetics without, without a doubt. Some of it is, is behavioral characteristics. So for example, retrievers were, were bred as hunting dogs. So, you know, they were bred for a purpose to do a particular activity, if you will. And many, many dogs were, I mean, spaniels, terriers, what have you, they all were sort of originally developed for a purpose, but you're right. I mean, a lot of it's based on aesthetics. And the bottom line is, is when you're breeding animals for specific traits, be they behavioral traits or physical traits, you are invariably also going to be selectively breeding for traits that you don't see. Genetics is an incredibly complicated thing, and there is an awful lot that goes on behind the curtain. So that's how come all of a sudden you have, you know, you have golden retrievers and German shepherds that that have widespread hip dysplasia. Well, nobody intentionally bred these dogs to have hip dysplasia. It just sort of came along with the package when they were breeding them for other characteristics. But perhaps, you know, even worse than that is what you brought up is the aesthetics end of it. You know, dogs that were bred purely for aesthetics and the one that comes to mind, and my apologies to anybody out there who has a French bulldog at home, French bulldogs are, are, are just genetically speaking a bit of a mess. One of the things that we do at my practice is we do physical therapy, and I cannot tell you how many French bulldogs we have in our practice in the physical therapy department because they have terrible backs. Because if you take an x-ray of any French bulldog, the one characteristic you will see in every French bulldog is none of them have a normal spine because we've bred them that way. And now they're prone to back problems. Nobody did that on purpose, but it just came with when you're going to make a dog that looks like that, you've screwed up their back. So there's a term in veterinary medicine called hybrid vigor. And basically what that means is, is the, the, you know, the, the less sort of genetically specific a breed of an animal is, the more mixed breed they are, the healthier they tend to be because they tend not to have these genetic predispositions that we get when we sort of force genetics in a way that it doesn't want to go. So if there was like a zombie apocalypse, which, which breeds would die out first and which ones would probably be surviving the longest? It's really funny you say that because after that whole rant I just went on about hybrid vigor, I have two Shih Tzus at home. And I, I frequently tell my two little Shih Tzus, Sammy and Marty, that in the zombie, the zombie apocalypse, I would give them about seven minutes to live until something swooped down from the sky and carried them away. My little dogs are wonderful, wonderful creatures. I love them to the end of the earth, but they are not equipped to survive on their own. But yeah, I mean, but I'll tell you what, those those 30-pound brown dogs in Africa would do just fine. And in fact, they do on a day-to-day basis because mostly that's exactly what they do is they live on their own. So, you know, some dogs, you know, some dogs are certainly more physiologically capable of, of, of surviving. And it's the ones that are, they're not too big, but they're not too small. You know, they're, they're orthopedically sturdy. And, you know, and they're able to move and they're able to hunt, just like a dog is supposed to be able to do. My mom has, she had a Shih Tzu, now she has another Shih Tzu. And that was something I learned in the book, something I never thought about before, but you were talking about exercise tolerance for pets and how the squish-faced dogs, or yeah, (laughs) what is the role of the squish-faced dogs in exercise? 
Well, I mean, you know, the thing is, is so the, the medical term for the squish face dog is called brachycephalic. Shih tzus, bulldogs, pugs, what have you. I mean, those dogs classically don't breathe great. Some of them better than others, depending on the dog. But I mean, you can't generally take a dog like that out on like a five mile run. They're not going to make it. You know, you have to exercise is incredibly important for health and longevity. But as is the case with us as humans, that, you know, you have to exercise appropriately. You know, you have to exercise appropriately for your body type. So for example, I mean, clearly we're on audio here and not on video. You know, I'm a person that very much enjoys exercise and I used to love to run. The thing that I always wanted to achieve as, as a runner would be like, I would see these people running down the street that seemed like they were just floating. They were just like floating like a gazelle down the street, no effort whatsoever. And I always told myself, wow, if I just do this long enough, maybe I can get to that point. And somewhere along the line, a good friend of mine looked at me and he said, he said, you know, those people run because they're built that way and not the other way around. You're never going to be that guy. And like, I'm like, oh, right. Because I'm not built like the guy that floats down the street like a gazelle. I can walk and hike for days on end with no problem. If I run for more than three or four days in a row, my knees explode because I am not built to do that. And, and the bottom line is, is my Shih Tzu is not built to go out and run for five miles either, but they love going out for a walk. But that said, if you have a border collie, you better take that dog out for runs and, and, and get them exercise or they're going to go nuts. We know in humans, and I believe you mentioned this in your book as well, but basically centenarians and particularly super centenarians, you know, seem to have something magically, some genetic combination that makes them resilient to a lot of the factors of aging. So even if they have not the best lifestyle, they just seem to be like, you know, good. Do we see that in pets? Are there like, not super centenarians, but are there like super something pets? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, without a doubt, there is a, there is a genetic gift that some animals and some people get, you know, there's a reason why some people can like smoke a pack of cigarettes a day and still live to be 90 years old, you know, in spite of them doing everything they possibly can to kill themselves, somehow their physiology won't let it happen. And you see that with animals as well. Some of them, you know, in spite of like eating the wrong food and not exercising and seemingly doing all the wrong things, you still wind up with a 17, 18 year old dog. How does that happen? they're blessed with genetics. Not all of us are so blessed. And really the whole, the whole concept behind longevity science, and you're very well aware of this, it is what it's really about is it's about leveraging the genetics that you have. Some of us are perhaps dealt a better hand than others, but that doesn't mean, you know, that, that, you know, you just say, well, you know, I'm destined to die at 50. Oh, well, you know, there's so much that you can do to move that needle, especially now with what we understand about both the hallmarks of aging and about diagnostic testing that we can do to monitor and measure some of these factors. So we know what we're actually doing to move that needle. And then furthermore, and this is maybe, you know, it's a little down the road, but not that much down the road. When you start talking about things like gene therapy and gene editing, now all of a sudden you may actually be able to change the, the, the hand that you're dealt. 
So clearly part of this is about doing everything we can to live longer and live better. And part of this, and this is, you know, perhaps more true on the human side than it is the animal side, is you better keep your, your, yourself healthy long enough until the science gets to a point where we can figure out how to fix those little genetic quirks that you might have been born with. Yeah, because I don't think we actually answered this. So the actual lifespan of dogs and cats historically and now, and then also what is like the longest lived dog and cat? Yeah, I mean, so, you know, so historically, you know, and dogs is a little bit of a, well, I mean, dogs and cats are a little bit of a tricky question to answer there, partially because dogs, there's quite a range in, in, in lifespan variability based on the size of the dog. But I think without question, we are seeing the lifespan of dogs get shorter. You know, so for example, and I think I mentioned this before, there is some research to show that, you know, in the 60s, your average golden retriever was living into their mid-teens. Now they're living, you know, probably five years younger, plus or minus. Cats, I'm not sure if we have that research on. I think cats have been a little bit less affected because there's been less genetic manipulation of cats. Without question, there are breeds of cats, of course. But I mean, for the most part, you know, most cats running around out there, most cats that people have are what we would call domestic short hairs, which is just, you know, your generic house cat. So, so their genetics are a little bit less mucked with, if you will. So, you know, your average cat, I would say probably, probably mid-teens would be a good solid average. I have personally seen cats, you know, into their mid-20s, which is pretty damn old. The oldest dog I've ever personally seen was 23. The oldest dog I am aware of that lived that long was a dog that just recently passed away in Portugal. I believe the dog was 32 years old. Wow. Okay. That's always perplexed me because the age formula for pets is always, even when I was like really little, I remember thinking about this because I was like, it doesn't make sense. Cause you know, they'll say like a human year is like a seven years and dogs or something. I'm like, well, that can't really work because then you add like a year. This is literally me like in middle school, elementary school thinking about this. I was like, if you add like one year, then at the end of one of these really old ones, now you're putting it like way past human potential. So it doesn't seem to quite add up that way. No, it's not a, it's not a linear thing. I mean, it, it, perhaps it's roughly true that if you sort of figure it out in the aggregate, maybe it's that, but I mean, certainly in their early years, I mean, you think about it, like a dog goes from being a puppy to being a fully mature animal in about a year. Whereas in a human, you know, that takes about 20 years. So, you know, probably their first year or two, like if you, if you equilibrate it to humans, it's, it's a, you know, it may be 15, 20 years in their first year, but then certainly as they get older, that number goes way, way, way down. So it's a curve. There's no way to just sort of assign that, that seven year number was, uh, you know, just, I, I don't know where that came from, but it's clearly not accurate. Hi, friends. Do you want to come hang out with me and Dave Asprey and so many other guests I've had on the show? You simply must come to the 10th annual biohacking conference, May 30th through June 1st in Dallas, Texas. And of course, I have a massive discount code for you guys. I went last year to the one in Orlando and it was one of the most fun times of my entire life. I met and got to hang out with so many guests that I've had on the show. I met so many of you guys. And of course, there's lots of Danger Coffee and Dave Asprey approved meals and dry farm wines. 
And that's just the social aspect. The conference itself is mind blowing. They have this incredible expo where they have all the biohacking supplements, all the biohacking things. You can learn about them, try samples, meet the creators and founders. If you haven't tried a lot of biohacking things, it's a great chance to actually try them out in person. Things like brain tap, infrared sauna, hyperbaric oxygen chambers, and so much more. There are so many incredible speakers as well. You can hear talks from people I've had on the show like Paul Saladino, Dr. Daniel Amen, Dr. Sarah Gottfried, Dr. Mercola, Dr. Annika Becca, and that is just a few of them. I seriously had the time of my life last year, and I would love to hang out with you guys. And you can get 35% off tickets. Just go to melanieavalon.com slash biohackingconference and use the coupon code BCMelanie to get 35% off your tickets. That's melanieavalon.com slash biohackingconference with the code BCMelanie to get 35% off your tickets. This code can be used for general admission or for VIP access. Seating is limited. They do sell out. They sold out last year. So get your ticket now. And if you come... Definitely let me know because I want to meet you. So hopefully see you guys in Dallas. MelanieAvalon.com slash biohacking conference with coupon code BCMelanie. Get your tickets now. I'll see you guys there. Speaking of that period of time when the dog or cat is maturing, I recently had Loretta Bruning on the show. She writes a lot about animal science and what we can learn about it for humans. It's kind of like the reverse, more like social relationships and things like that. But something she pointed out that I thought was so fascinating was that we base our assumptions about how the animal kingdom works, like how they interact and everything based on our pets and how that's not a good model. I mean, she doesn't even talk about it like diet-wise. She's talking about like social things, like a, like walking your dog, your little puppy, like barking at a big dog, like in, in the real world that like in the human kingdom, that would like not happen. Like, because the animals, you know, they know their place and they don't try to fight unless one thinks they can win. The point of all of that, the question I'm getting to is, so that maturation period, has there been a lot of changes on the health and behavioral patterns and everything of dogs and cats because of the human involvement there compared to you know, the way it would be without the human involvement? Well, I mean, it's a really mixed bag from the standpoint of, you know, unquestionably, when you look at animals that are cared for by people, you know, they're getting medical care, which is a huge thing. Depending on what they're eating, they may or may not be getting better nutrition than they would be in the wild. What they're not getting, you know, being sort of human-kept animals is, they're not necessarily getting that same social interaction. They're not getting that that social hierarchy experience that they would in the wild. So I think it's a very different experience for them sociologically, if you will. I think at the end of the day, you know, purely physically speaking, they're better off with us in part because at this point, you know, domestic animals, I mean, you know, most of them are not they're not particularly equipped to kind of to kind of be feral if you will physiologically or even mentally cognitively speaking i mean there was an interesting study that came out a few years ago saying that one of the things that happened when wolves were domesticated into dogs is we unintentionally also made them not as intelligent which kind of makes sense to me 
smarter dogs do have a tendency to be a little bit mischievous and get into trouble. And, you know, if you think about it, like a wolf that is out in the wild surviving on its own, I mean, it needs to be thinking like this is not purely an instinctual thing. Like they need to like make a plan and, 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 you know, figure out how to survive. Or again, like my little dog, Sammy and Marty. (laughs) Yeah. That's never going to happen. God love them. But anyway, yeah, I mean, I think it's really interesting that you bring up sort of the social aspect of all of this, because, you know, one of the things that I talk about in the book is, is really sort of the, the three, the three most impactful things that you can do to help your dog live longer, long before you ever get to supplements and pharmaceuticals and regenerative medicine and all that fun stuff are diet, exercise, and lifestyle is like, how do you, how do you set up your pet's day-to-day living in such a way that it promotes longevity? And that's a, you know, that's a thing that, that, I mean, we all really need to think about for ourselves as well, because not all of us are sort of living that plan either. But, you know, the difference between us and our dogs is, is that our dogs don't really have any control over any of that stuff. They're completely relying on us for it. Something I thought was really interesting because you, especially on the show and things we talk about with diet and health and fitness, you know, we're often talking about lifestyle and there's this vague general idea that we should mimic our ancestors and, you know, do everything diet and exercise wise that mimics that. I found it really interesting, the question of like cats, for example, and indoor versus outdoor as an indoor versus outdoor pet, because you would think just approaching it casually that being an outdoor cat is the thing that would be most, you know, like their evolution, but you make a pretty strong argument for indoor cats. So, so what is the role on environment indoor versus outdoors? Well, I mean, certainly as, as it pertains to cats, I think the, 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 the evidence is unquestionable that outdoor cats are going to die. And I say that in a very blunt way on purpose because it's true. The average lifespan of a strictly outdoor cat is quite short. I think it's like three years, plus or minus, between cars and other animals and disease and, and you know, potential environmental or, or, you know, toxin exposure. It is not safe out there for strictly outdoor cats. And as a side note, and this is not strictly a longevity issue for pets, but it is a longevity issue for other things, outdoor cats are absolutely decimating the wild bird population in urban areas like like decimating songbirds and you know and and you know sort of wild birds that live outside which is clearly not a good thing either so you know keeping cats indoors so you know instead of a lifespan of 3 years you're going to you know hopefully get to around 20 if you do things right and you know genetically speaking things work out there are certainly things that one needs to do to provide some environmental enrichment for a, for a cat that's living strictly indoors, but those things are not necessarily particularly difficult to do. It just requires some, some, some forethought to do it. And again, this comes back to the, you know, having a pet is a responsibility for us as humans. We are 100% responsible for every aspect of that animal's life. You know, if you have a child, at some point that child is going to grow up and they're going to leave the house and they're going to go do their own thing. And it's not necessarily going to be your, your responsibility anymore. When it comes to pets, from, from, from the first day to the last day, it's all on us. It's a big responsibility. 
And question about the indoor versus outdoor. Do those stats vary based on where you live, like city versus country or different states? Oh, sure. Yeah. I mean, you know, I mean, for example, like if you live in Manhattan, I mean, you you literally have to be insane to let your cat outside. You know, if you live out and, you know, in a rural area, I mean, that's going to be less of an issue from the standpoint of cars and people and that sort of thing. But, you know, that's not to say there aren't dangers out there, you know, you know, wild animals, dogs, you know, what have you. I mean, there's still, there's still dangers, but yeah, I mean, you make a good point that depending on where you live, I mean, those, those numbers are going to shift one way or the other. And you know what? I mean, people have, there's philosophical issues here as well, you know, and I think there are people out there that, you know, they're, their, their sort of philosophy as well. It's an animal. It's going to sort of live and die on its own terms versus I'm going to care for this animal and help it live as long as possible. And you know what? I mean, this is probably not the forum to have that philosophical discussion, but you know, people do have different, different approaches to these things. Yeah, no, it was just interesting. My, like my visceral experience of reading the book and reading that chapter. And cause I hadn't really thought about it much before the indoor versus outdoor thing. But I even in me felt like it was tying into some emotional reaction I was having. I'm not sure what that reaction was, but it's just interesting about, like you just said, the broader philosophical implications there. It could be an entire book on its own, honestly. Agreed. This is a super random quick tangent question and naive. (laughs) Coyotes, are they dogs or wolves? I've heard they're the only animal that's in like every city, every major city, which I thought was really interesting. So, I mean, they're all, they're all sort of in the, in the, the genus Canidae. So they're all sort of related. Coyotes are clearly non-domesticated. So I would say that genetically they're closer to a wolf than they are to a dog. You know, every time I see a coyote and we certainly have plenty of them here in the Bay Area, the first thought that goes through my mind is, oh, look at that malnourished German shepherd. And then I realized I'm like, oh yeah, it's a coyote. They're just skinny dogs. I mean, I don't know why they have such a, a scary factor to them. I'm like really scared of them. Yeah. You know what? As a, as a human, you really don't have much to be afraid of. If you're a six pound dog, yeah, you better hide. I grew up in Memphis. The reason I'm thinking about it was that was the issue for outdoor cats primarily. Oh, for sure. Yeah. They're great snacks for coyotes. Yeah. They actually got one of our cats, which was really sad. Okay. Back to the practical things we can do for our pets. So you mentioned the different, oh, and I'll just let listeners know. So in the book at the beginning, Gary goes through the the hallmarks of aging, which is really wonderful and a deep dive into all of that. And so literally, even if you don't have pets or cats or dogs, if you know somebody with a cat or dog, you'll learn so much about longevity science for yourself and then for people that have cats and dogs. So going back to what we can actually do. So we were talking about diet earlier. A big question I have, so you're mentioning how cats are, you know, carnivores, but you do also mention in the book, some of the benefits of fiber for cats. So I I'm wondering, are they more suited to a 100% carnivore diet? Should they have a little bit of plants and fiber? If so, why, what does the ideal diet look like for a cat? Well, you know, I mean, the ideal diet for a cat, certainly evolutionarily speaking, is, is, is animal-based. You know, if you look at, you know, for example, if you look at wild cats, it's pretty rare for them to eat something that's not animal-based. I mean, sometimes you might see them nibbling on a little grass or something like that. But generally speaking, the fiber that they're getting is probably 
within the little creature that they just ate. You know, remember the, you know, the mouse, the rat, whatever it may be. I mean, that's an herbivore. So they're, they're filled with fiber because that's what they're eating. And then, you know, food chain being what it is, they get, they get ingested by something larger. And like I say, I mean, sort of biologically speaking, domesticated cats are much closer to wild cats than say dogs are to wolves. So, so as a rule, you know, cats do need a, you know, would, would best thrive on a largely meat-based diet. If you look at sort of like your average kibble out there for cats, not all of them are, you know, completely meat-based. And that's a whole nother conversation about whether that's a good thing or not. But generally speaking, you know, I mean, to me, when, when you talk about optimal nutrition, I think the way that you look at it is, I, you know, I look at, I look at any body, whether it's a dog, a cat, a human, what have you as a biological machine. And that machine was designed or slash evolved, if you will, to thrive on a certain spectrum of nutrients. And I think that when you're talking about optimal nutrition, the question is, is what are those nutrients that that biological machine was designed to thrive on much in the same way that my car was designed to run on a certain type of fuel and a certain type of oil and various other fluids, I could put the wrong fluids in my car and it might still run, but it's not going to run well. And that's exactly what happens with the body is if you put the wrong food in it, it'll find a way to make it work, but it probably won't work as well as it otherwise would. Yeah, it's really interesting because I think it's so much more obvious to us as humans when we're eating processed food that, you know, the how different that is from normal, real, whole food. And yet with our dogs and cats, I just think so many people don't even think about it that we're so many people are feeding them basically the equivalent of a processed food diet their entire life from, you know, birth until death. What do you suggest? Because I know there can be a time cost barrier for a lot of people. And there's just an overwhelming now, there is now an evolution in all of the options, like, you know, freeze dried and raw food and dehydrated, rehydrated. Like there's so many different options now. What do you recommend for your patients as far as what to ideally feed their pet, their dog or cat? And then realistically, if they say they don't have time or money to do the, you know, the best of the best. Sure. Yeah. I mean, and, and, you know, it's, it's no, it's no surprise to me that there's a lot of confusion out there amongst people about what is the best thing to feed their, their, their pets, because there's an enormous amount of disinformation out there. A lot of it coming from, you know, the pet food companies themselves. And unfortunately, a lot of it coming from, from the veterinary profession. I love my profession and I love other veterinarians, but I do think that this is one place where my profession has really dropped the ball as far as what optimal nutrition looks like. So, you know, we just had this whole conversation about, you know, feed them the nutrients that they're biologically evolved to eat. Well, the reality is, is nobody evolved eating processed food out of a bag or a can. You know, that's just, that's just reality. And we all know from our own health that the more processed food we eat and the less whole food we eat, you know, the, the worse off we tend to be physically speaking. But what a lot of people don't really think about is the fact that that bag of kibble or those cans of food you're feeding your dog or your cat are by definition ultra-processed food. And it brings with it all of the baggage that processed food brings with it with people. 
And then you think about the fact that not only are they eating processed food, but they're eating that ultra processed food every single day of their life. And then we sort of scratch our heads when all of a sudden there's higher rates of inflammation and arthritis and cancer and all kinds of other problems down the road. So, you know, to your question of what is ideal to feed, in a perfect world, you know, all animals should be eating a fresh, whole food, balanced diet. So fresh whole foods can look like a number of things. It can look like it can look like lightly cooked food. It can look like raw food. You can buy these things ready-made. You can make them yourself. There's also other options like freeze-dried food, which is very, very close to, to fresh food, but with a lot more convenience built in. But then, and I think you, you brought this up in your question, then there's the, the, the sort of the reality of what people can actually make happen in their life, whether that's a matter of time, convenience, finance, whatever it may be. You know, one of the things that I always tell people, whether I'm talking to them about what they should feed their pet or, or treatments or supplement regimens or medications or whatnot, anything that I recommend that people do for their animals, it has to be sustainable for them. So in other words, if it's too hard for you to do, either logistically or financially or for whatever reason, and you're not going to be able to maintain it, then, then I haven't really done you any favors by telling you to do something if you're not going to be able to keep it up. You know, it's like, you know, <laughs> given the fact that it's January 2nd, for all those people out there that made a New Year's resolution that they're going to exercise and get healthy, statistically speaking, most people that make that resolution will not maintain it for very long. And at the end of the day, they haven't really done themselves any favors by doing it. So it's important that, that we, you know, that we live in the real world and, you know, and make a plan for our pets that actually is sustainable. So, you know, what I tell people is feed as much fresh food as you can. If financially speaking, it's not possible for you to feed your pet all fresh food, then feed them as much fresh food as you can and feed them the highest quality canned or dry food to, to round it out. I think you do, you do what you have to do in the real world sense. You know, I'd love to sit here and tell you that every single bite of food that I eat is perfectly balanced, fresh, whole food, but it's not. I would love to have a private chef that is feeding me every meal that I eat all day, but that ain't happening in my life. So I do the best that I can. You know, the one thing that I will say when it comes to pets, it is, it is a little bit easier with our pets in the sense that every bite of food that they take is coming from us. So we do get that opportunity to really have that kind of control, but it does become a function of both finance and logistics, and you just have to do what works best for you. Hi, friends. So I'm sort of haunted by clothes. If you follow me on Instagram, you probably know that I love wearing all the new clothes all the time. And I know that that is not really sustainable and not good for the planet. That's why I am thrilled that there is now a way to get all of the clothes with none of the waste. And I'm going to tell you how you can get unlimited clothes with no waste for a month for free. That's right, I now have a website for both myself and you guys where you can get free unlimited clothes with free shipping, free exchanges, nonstop from all of the hottest brands, and it is so incredibly easy. It's called MelanieAvalon'sCloset.com. We have so many incredible brands, including my favorites like BCBG, Calvin Klein, 
and so many more. Think like a hundred brands. There are so many options. And the way it works is when you get a subscription, you search through the clothes, pick what you want. They send it to you with fast, easy shipping. You wear it as long as you want. And then when you're ready for more clothes, you just drop it off in their prepackaged envelope and get your next round. It is so incredibly cool. They have multiple plans. The starter plan gives you two pieces at a time. Friends, I actually have a little secret hacked. Don't tell them that I told you this. When you get your two pieces, you can actually immediately go into your account, click return, and they'll go ahead and send you the next two pieces. So technically you can have four pieces at a time. You also have a cool virtual closet that you can keep stocked with everything you eventually want to order so you never miss out. And if you really like something and want to keep it, you can opt to buy it at a massively discounted price. Friends, I am obsessed. This is finally the answer to wearing all the clothes all the time with none of the waste. Oh, and of course, one of my major reservations was the cleaning compounds that they use on the clothes because yes, it is dry cleaning, which normally makes me nervous. And they don't say this on the website. So I reached out to them and I was like, hey, what's going on with the cleaning? What do you guys use? Because I can't promote this if it's just normal dry cleaning. And thankfully, they let me know that they do not use any detergents, fabric softeners, or chemicals that are harsh. Everything is professionally dry cleaned or laundered with detergents that are free from dyes and scents. It's all gentle and it uses low temperature cycles. So yes, we are good on that front as well. It is the coolest thing ever. And you can try it free for a month. Yes, completely free. Just go to melanieavalonscloset.com to sign up. Free clothes for a month. After that, their plans are super affordable. We're talking honestly, an entire month is less than the cost of typically what would be the cost of one dress. And I am not kidding. That's right. Unlimited clothes for less than the cost of one outfit. I'm just so thrilled to bring this resource to you guys. I can't wait to hear what you guys think. So again, get free unlimited clothes for a month at melanieavalonscloset.com. That's melanieavalonscloset.com for all of the clothes, none of the waste. And definitely share your pictures and tag me on Instagram because I want to see all the fabulous things that you guys are wearing. That's melanieavalonscloset.com. So growing up, I had cats and then... Now my parents have cats and dogs, but there was a point in time where I was like an adult and I was taking care of our cats from childhood again. And I was like, I'm going to revolutionize their health. And so I um, was like doing all the research. This was probably like seven or eight years ago. And so I ordered the, I ordered freeze dried raw food. <laughs> Two comments about that. And I've shared this story before. One comment is that I was <laughs> I was reading the um, ingredients on the back of it. And I was like, oh, these are like all really good ingredients. And they're probably things I would benefit from eating. So I would literally like taste their, their food <laughs> to see. I was like, I can like get some organs in me. I actually didn't taste that bad. I didn't think it tasted that bad, but they apparently did. So like, it was a little bit of a struggle to get them to actually eat it. And then on the flip side, I would try these, like what I thought were as good as, as good ingredients as I could find in dry food. Cause I was like, maybe I'll do like a hybrid approach. And then my cat, Misty, she had, she was our fat cat. Then she would just like gorge herself and then she would start, start vomiting. And I was like, what, like, what is your problem? So actually getting the, the animal to adapt to this. And, and it was frustrating because I was like, you're a carnivore. You should just like want to eat this. How common is that for the actual animals themselves to not be open to this non-processed food? Yeah. Oh gosh, so much to unpack there. So here's the thing. And this is, 
This is true for both dogs and cats, but it is, it is very, very true for cats is that animals are very much creatures of habit. So, you know, if you have a pet that was, that was raised from being from a puppy or a kitten on dry food, then to them, that's food. And if you put something in front of them, like fresh whole foods, they literally don't know what it is, which is kind of sad when you think about it, but that's actually quite common. And particularly as it pertains to cats, you know, cats are like, they're like really OCD people. Like everything has to be the same every day. I mean, if you don't believe that, rearrange the furniture in your living room and see what your cat has to say about it. You know, it's, it's, it's really, it's, they, they just need to know what's going on at every moment of the day. So when you switch something like their food, it's, they, they don't like it. So the, the solution to this, I mean, in a perfect world, you would start these animals out on day one on fresh food. So it's, so that's food to them. But, but, you know, since you can't turn back the clock, the way that you, you sort of work this out is you do a very, very gradual transition. And what I mean by that is you get whatever food you're going to feed, whether it's freeze dried or fresh food or whatever, and add just a tiny little bit to their regular food, mix it in. And, you know, just so little that they're not even really going to notice it. And each day you're going to add a tiny, tiny little bit more and do a very, very gradual transition over a period, you know, depending on how finicky your creature is. It could be a week. It could be several weeks. It could be a month. The goal here is to make the transition so gradual that it's not shocking to them. And, and you know, I mean, you just kind of have to take it super slow. Most animals will eventually adjust I used to have a cat that had been raised on kibble. And what I found was, is that she wasn't really super overjoyed with fresh food. But if I bought the freeze dried and fed it to her dry, and I say this with the full knowledge that you're supposed to add water to it and rehydrate it, she preferred it dry. That cat lived to be somewhere north of 20 years old. So, I mean, something worked, you know, but again, going back to that whole sustainability thing, you have to do what works in your world. I mean, if your cat says, oh, hell no to raw food, then, then, you know, I mean, here's the other thing that I tell people is like, you can wait out a dog when it comes to food related stuff. Like a dog, when they get hungry enough, they'll eat no matter what it is. A cat will starve themselves just to spite you. You cannot wait out a cat. Like they'll literally starve. So like you have to do this gradually. It has to be a negotiation with a cat. Okay. This would have been really helpful information back then. I was, <laughs> I was probably much too impatient. I also, and you talked about this in the book, I also did all the research on the water bowl and the eating bowl because it was like, oh, it needs to be this certain angle so that they, there's something about the angle. I got some special water bowl. So two questions there. Is there something about the the bowl level and angle? And then also you talk about actually the water. Like I, This is something I dropped the ball on. I did not get a recirculating water system thing. Bowls and water. Yeah, bowls and water. So let's start with the water. So water-wise, you know, I think it's important to realize that depending on where you live, your municipal water may or may not be okay from a drinking perspective. 
There's all kinds of studies out there that show that there's some pretty horrific things in, in drinking water, depending on where you live, ranging anywhere from plastics to hormones to pharmaceuticals, pesticides, what have you. So needless to say, that's true for animals as well as people. What water you feed them is important. And if you feel like your, your water is questionable, then you can either get like, you know, you can feed bottled water to be clear, not distilled water. Distilled water is not really for drinking, but bottled water, or you can get something like a reverse osmosis water system with, with minerals added back to it. And that will clean up a lot of what's going on in, in drinking water. And then, you know, moving beyond the water itself, then the water bowl is particularly true for cats. If the water bowl is too small and the cat's whiskers touch the sides of the bowl, they don't like it. And a lot of times they won't drink out of it. So you need kind of a, kind of a wide sort of flat water bowl. And cats also instinctively prefer to drink moving water because in the wild, stagnant water is frequently contaminated. You know, this is why if you have a cat, you may have seen them like, like the, they'll drink out of like a dripping faucet. My cat used to love to come up and dip her paw into my glass of water that I was drinking, which was cute for her and really disgusting for me because I know where those feet have been. You know, so they make these little recirculating water fountain bowls. So the water's moving and it's filtered and it's, and it stays cleaner. So the kitties are more likely to drink out of it. And then the last thing I'll say about water is, you know, as it pertains to both the water and the bowl, it's really important that you change that every day. You know, just because there's water in the bowl doesn't mean that the water tastes good or is good. So every day you should be cleaning that bowl, you know, wipe it out, soap and water, rinse it out real well, fill it back up with clean water and go again. You wouldn't necessarily want to drink water that's just been sitting in a glass or a bowl for a few days. I don't know why we would think that our dogs and cats would be any more interested in doing the same. But again, when it comes to, you know, if we want them to live their longest, best lives, then they need to have access to basic stuff like fresh food and clean water. Really quick last food questions that I remembered. One is how intuitive can we be, actually, I guess with both cats and dogs. So like a cat, for example, can we just feed them meat and they'll be okay? Or because of their history or evolution or just normal situation, are there deficiencies that we have to worry about, like taurine, for example? Sure. So it's an interesting, the, the way you ask that question is interesting. Can we just feed them meat? Well, I think it really depends on what you mean by you say meat. So if we're talking about purely muscle meat, then no, you cannot do that. Because again, you know, that, that wild cat ancestor, when they ate things, they don't eat just muscle meat. They eat most of the animals. So they're eating the bones, the organs, they're eating everything. And that's where all the nutrition comes from. You know, if you look at animals in the wild, like, you know, lions or whatnot, when they take down an animal, the first thing that they go for is not the muscle meat, it's the organs. They eat the liver, they eat the heart. They, you know, instinctively, they know where the nutrition is. The muscle meat is frequently the last to go that gets picked apart by the scavengers because that in, in some ways is the least nutritious. So you brought up taurine. So taurine is an amino acid that cats are not able to make on their own. So they have to have it in their diet. Well, the highest source of taurine in an animal's body is in the heart. So that's one of the reasons why cats instinctively eat the heart because they know they need that taurine. 
Do you know, were they ever able to make it? Like, was that a loss or was that an adaptation one way or the other? To my knowledge, all, all cats are, taurine is, is an essential amino acid, meaning they need to, they need to eat it. I'm just wondering what happened, like why they evolved to not make that. I don't, I don't actually know the answer. Uh, it's a good question. I'm not sure. Like, I wonder if you would think, I mean, the, just like the easy answer is you would think that they were historically having a diet that was abundant in taurine. Well, I mean, and again, like you don't see taurine deficiencies in wild cats. Oh, you don't? Okay. I was going to ask that. No, you absolutely don't because they know what to eat. Oh, okay. That's so interesting. Okay. It's kind of like the vitamin C question with humans. And like, what are the broader implications of our evolution surrounding that? And should we eat carbs or not? That's a whole tangent. Okay. That's interesting. Similarly related is, okay. So my, my mom, like I said, she has a Shih Tzu. This Shih Tzu and the last Shih Tzu, maybe this relates to what we were talking about earlier with breeds and health issues, but they have both had diet related or, or health issues where they have to be on prescript quote prescription pet food. Cause I would like historically talk to my mom and be like, maybe we should look at what we're feeding, you know, Roxy or Mia. My mom's response was always, I have to feed her the prescription pet food. And then I would like look at the ingredients on the prescription pet food. And I was like, Ugh. that was your first mistake. Who is running it? Is it a commercial thing or is it actually a medical thing? Oh, well, I mean, it's, it's, it's big pet food at its core. You know, we're talking about Hills, Mars, Purina, talking about some of the biggest companies in the world that, that are making these foods. So there's so much to talk about here. For starters, and I mentioned this earlier, you know, the nutrition thing is, is, is one of these places where, where I do honestly think veterinary medicine drops the ball a bit. And the reality is, is that most veterinarians, myself included, do not get a whole lot of nutrition education in school. And what nutrition education we do get is more on the sort of like critical care nutrition end of things like how do you feed a critical animal intravenously in an ICU, which is all interesting information, but not useful to most people on a day-to-day basis. And most of what we get on how to feed the average dog and cat is put them on a kibble that they do well on and leave them on that for the rest of their life until they need a prescription diet. And that is unfortunate. And, 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 and while, you know, on the one hand, there's no, there's no conspiracy within the veterinary profession that makes this happen. The reality is, is that, is that, you know, the, the, the research into animal nutrition is very clearly driven by these big pet food companies. You know, what that sets up for is that sets up for research bias because they're researching what they want to research and they're proving the points that they want to prove. And, and, you know, I mean, the interesting thing about prescription diets is if you look at the research into like how these prescription diets are created. So for example, you take a diet made for like cats with kidney disease. The research is solid. There is, there is no question in my mind that the research is good. And there's been a lot of, lot of great information that has come out of those studies of like, optimal nutrient profiles for animals with various medical conditions. What happens is, is when that research then gets put in the hands of the people who then have to commercially manufacture a food with the goal of 
let me match this nutritional profile that came up in the research and do it in such a way that we can maximize profits. That's when it all goes to hell in a handbasket. And that's, that's ultimately the problem because it's a for-profit industry. I don't hold that against them. That's how capitalism and commerce works. But the problem is, is that your average veterinarian is getting all of their information on how to feed dogs and cats, either directly or indirectly from these big pet food companies. And they're not getting any impartial information about, wow, maybe if you took that same nutrient profile with a, for a cat with kidney disease and formulated it as a fresh food diet, maybe that cat would do even better. But nobody's looked at that because there's no money in that research. That was my thoughts exactly with my mom. I was like, well, even if it is prescription, like we should be able to figure out what it's trying to accomplish and accomplish that. And yeah, and, uh, and, and you know, and at the risk of a little bit of uh, shameless self-promotion, my first book, The Ultimate Pet Health Guide, has 50 recipes in the back of it, 25 for dogs and 25 for cats, covering many of those same medical issues that you could buy a prescription diet for, GI stuff, pancreatitis, kidney disease, heart disease, cancer, what have you, but in fresh food formats. Awesome. Well, we'll definitely put links to that in the show notes. <laughs> and how about the, the grain-free controversy? Oh, boy. You want to set up a whole nother three-hour podcast for that one? So grain-free foods. Boy, that, that is a mess. Just casually drop that in there. <laughs> so here's what happened. You know, there are veterinarians out there who for years have been, you know, tilting at windmills saying that, you know, making kibble using a bunch of high carbohydrate ingredients like wheat and corn and rice as fillers is a terrible idea. So somewhere along the line, some enterprising soul in a pet food company said, ooh, I got an idea for a marketing angle. Let's make grain-free pet foods and say that we're not using these grains as fillers anymore. So suddenly grain-free pet foods became a buzzword and it gained some traction and then everybody got in on the, uh, the grain-free pet food angle. But the reality is, is if you're going to make a dry food like kibble, you are effectively making a baked good. Try and make a cake or a cookie without a carbohydrate. You can't do it. So they took out the grains, but they had to put something else in. So they, what they did was is they turned around and they put in other types of carbohydrates. So they put in beans, other kinds of legumes, just things that were not grains. And there was an assumption made that you could swap one carbohydrate out for another. The nutrient profile looked exactly the same as far as like macronutrients went. And they called it good. Well, lo and behold, it wasn't good. And, you know, this is one of these situations where clearly not every animal that was eating grain-free food got sick. And when I say sick, for those of you that aren't aware, there was an uptick in a particular type of heart disease called dilated cardiomyopathy or DCM. That is a known disease in dogs, but we saw more of it after this whole grain-free diet thing happened. So this is one of these situations where it's not that every dog eating grain-free got DCM, but I think when you had like a combination of a dog that was genetically predisposed with the grain-free diet, then you started to run into trouble. And, and that's kind of what happened. And now there's all this confusion out there. 
you hear people saying that, oh, you have to feed grain-free diets. You hear other people saying, oh, no, if you feed grain-free diets, your dog's going to get heart disease. None of it None of it is true strictly across the board. And the reality is, is when you look at fresh whole food diets, particularly raw food diets, well, I'll tell you what, those raw food diets have been naturally grain-free forever because that's just how they were formulated. And there has not been a problem with DCM with those foods because they never put those other odd, unusual carbohydrates in there. They were just formulated without carbohydrates. So it's not that dogs either need grains or don't need grains. You can feed a dog grains or you cannot feed a dog grains, but you do need to feed a dog a diet that's formulated properly. Hi, friends. I am so excited to tell you about something that I am obsessed with that can revolutionize your health, help with stress levels, support longevity, and really help you when you go out and are having a bit of wine or drinks or all the things. And I'm going to tell you how to get $100 off. So I've been talking about the role of NAD in our health for so long. NAD stands for nicotinamide adenine dinucleotide. It is a coenzyme that is involved in so many processes in our body, including energy production and DNA repair. And it is depleted by things like stress, aging, lack of sleep, alcohol, and of course, too much partying. In fact, a lot of researchers believe that declining NAD levels is one of the key factors in aging. That's why I have been really interested in boosting and supporting NAD levels. And I have tried all the things. You can take precursors to NAD called NR and NMN. I still take NMN. However, I am much more alert by directly giving your body NAD. And historically, the most common way to do that that is accessible to people was through NAD IVs and NAD shots. I actually never did an NAD IV for a few reasons. One, they are extraordinarily expensive. Two, I've been doing the shots, which I liked because they were easy to do. That said, they always made me feel a little bit unwell right afterwards. And I've heard that the IV makes a lot of people feel unwell. So if the shots were making me feel unwell and that was going into the muscle first as like a barrier, I can't even imagine what putting it straight into my bloodstream would have done. Plus with the IVs, you have to sit there for potentially hours. So basically IVs were a no-go for me. So like I said, I was doing the shots, but I was like, I wish there was an easier way to do this. Then a company called Ion Layer reached out to me Oh my goodness, friends, I am so obsessed. So they make transdermal NAD patches and they have studies showing that these patches actually boost your NAD levels. And what's so amazing is you put on a patch. It's super easy to put on. I have a video on my Instagram about how you do it. You basically get this patch thing with like a negative side and a positive side. You put saline on one side, you mix up the NAD with some sterile water and the NAD that they give you on the other side. Then you stick it to your arm or wherever you want to put it. You put a super cool black patch over over it, kind of like how you put the patches over CGMs. And then what's amazing is there are no side effects. You don't feel unwell from it and it lasts for 14 hours and it's so easy. You can do it at home and then you can really decide when you want to do it. So with the shots, I was doing them once a week and I was trying to do them before going out with this patch. Now I put on the patch before going out and it makes me feel so good. It really helps the next day from any alcohol recovery that you may need. And they look pretty awesome with my outfits. Not going to lie. I am obsessed with these patches. I just want everybody to know about them and they are so much more affordable than the shots or the IVs. If you want to boost your NAD levels, support 
support anti-aging, help with your stress, help with lack of sleep, and or optimize your partying. You need these patches, friends. And I'm so excited because working with the company has been amazing and they are giving you guys $100 off, which is incredible. So to get that discount, just go to melanieavalon.com slash ion layer. That's I-O-N-L-A-Y-E-R and use the coupon code melanieavalon to get $100 off your first order. I cannot recommend these enough. I'm gonna use them for the unforeseeable future, probably for the rest of my life. It's literally just become part of my arsenal now. Like when I'm getting ready to go out, usually once a week, put on my NAD patch. And even if I don't go out that week, I still like to do one once weekly. Oh, PS, they're also amazing for traveling. You guys know I'm not a big traveler. I've been doing more traveling recently and I wear these on the plane there and back. Game changer. Although it's really fun at TSA, especially because I already opt out and don't go through the scanner thing. So they already are suspicious. And then they're like, what's that on your arm? And I'm like, it's NAD. And then they're like, what's that? And then I'm like, it's a coenzyme in your body that's involved in a lot of metabolic processes and energy production and DNA repair. And then they just look at me really weird, but it's fine. It's totally fine. So again, that's melanieavalon.com slash ion layer to get $100 off your ion layer kit. It comes with six patches, totally the way to go for boosting NAD levels. And I cannot recommend it enough. melanieavalon.com slash ion layer with the coupon code melanieavalon for $100 off. Okay. So it wasn't the grain free that was the issue. It was the addition of the things they added. That's that's the best of our understanding at this point. I mean, it's not a hundred percent crystal clear, but it certainly does seem that way. Okay, very interesting. Yeah, I, I remember the first time I came across that because it was when I was neurotically. I think it was probably. So when did you say that happened? What year or years? Oh God, that's got to be probably four or five years ago now. Okay, yeah, right. Probably at the beginning of that because I was adamantly looking for grain-free stuff. And then I remember the first time I saw somebody marketing it as like not grain-free. And I was like, not grain-free. Why is that a marketing selling point? So the rabbit hole entered. On the flip side of the food, so fasting. So I'm also the co-host of the Intermittent Fasting Podcast. So talk about intermittent fasting a lot. And going back to when I was taking care of my family's cats, I did a lot of research because I was my first thought was like, oh, I'm going to put them on an intermittent fasting protocol. But then I was reading that you shouldn't do that for cats because they are accustomed to eating small meals and that they that it just wasn't good for them, that they could um, get sick or not get the food they needed. So I was really confused. And again, this was like years ago. So it was really interesting to read in your book about applying intermittent fasting to both dogs and cats, and also the suitability of one meal a day. Like I think you talk about dogs doing well with an evening meal because of not going to sleep on an empty stomach. Is that correct? That's like me. That's <laughs> That sounds like me. So intermittent fasting, can we apply it to our pets? And if so, how is it appropriate to do so? Yeah, you absolutely can. You know, and again, kind of getting back to that whole biological machine conversation, you know, dogs and cats in the wild, they don't eat two meals a day. They're not snacking all day long. In fact, you know, they're lucky if they eat every day, period. You know, so that's kind of how they're biologically designed to function. And in fact, dogs and cats are remarkably better able to maintain their blood sugar than we are as people. It's fascinating. Like, 
Like your average dog or cat, and I'm not suggesting anybody do this, but could easily go for a week or more without a bite of food and do just fine. That's not a medical recommendation, but that is a physiologic fact that it is that they are very well equipped for starvation. So I do quote a study in the book that looked at the difference in longevity between dogs that ate once a day and twice a day, and the once a day dogs live longer, which I think is very consistent with what we know about intermittent fasting in people. That study, to my knowledge, has not been done in cats, but I don't see any reason why it's not true in cats as well. You know, to your point, you know, there is sometimes some discussion about, about making sure that cats eat at, at what you're, what you're sort, of, sort of skirting around, whether you're aware of it or not, is a condition that cats can get called hepatic lipidosis or fatty liver disease. So long story short, if you have an overweight cat and they stop eating, whether because they're sick or upset or whatever reason, if they go for a few days without eating, they can actually go into liver failure and it can be quite serious. But that is kind of strictly a thing with like heavy cats that suddenly stop eating. It's not a, I have a healthy cat that eats once a day. That's not a problem in the slightest. I think the one thing that people do need to be aware of is, you know, if you have a dog or a cat at home that's, that's accustomed to eating twice a day, it may or may not be a practical thing for you to convert them to once a day eating. They may not be happy about it, but it might be something to think about for your future pets. But, you know, if you have, if, if you can make that conversion, then, you know, it's certainly something that you can try. So at the end of the day, you're feeding them the same amount, you know, per day, you're just feeding it in one meal instead of two. Okay. Awesome. 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 And then I, I will definitely refer listeners to your books for the massive list of supplements. I was blown away by this list, especially learning for humans as well, the potential longevity benefits of all these different supplements. But then you do talk about the supplements that are important for daily versus more fringe longevity supplements that you can rotate. As far as these super, you know, like rapamycin or spermidine or all these different things, how casual can we be when we experiment with them? Because it kind of felt like there are all these different options and how do you even know what to try, if anything? So it depends. I mean, when we're talking about the supplements, so spermidine, since you brought it up, I think that that is, I think that's a perfectly legitimate supplement for people to try. Rapamycin is a bit of a different animal. I mean, rapamycin, it's a pharmaceutical, it's a prescription item. This is not something that you can just go online and buy, or I hope not. God knows on the internet these days. But rapamycin is not a benign substance. It's not something that, you're, you know, that you should be giving every day. It's not something that you should give in the long term. You know, this is the kind of thing that needs to be done with, with medical supervision. The supplements, for the most part, are things that are pretty safe to give at home. And most of the supplements in the book, I do offer dose ranges for people, you know, for, for dogs and cats. I very specifically do not put dosing information for pharmaceuticals because I don't want people trying that stuff at home because there can be negative effects of that. And you did bring up another good point is, you know, I think there's something in the neighborhood of like 30 supplements listed in these books. I am by no means advocating that you turn around and you give your dog or your cat 30 supplements a day. Not only is it not helpful, it's just not really practical. It's a question of like strategizing, rotating through different things over time to touch on all of the various aspects of the hallmarks of longevity so you get the biggest benefit in the long run. 
Awesome. Yeah, I probably shouldn't have lumped rapamycin in with spermidine, but I'm so fascinated by rapamycin. Quick question about one of them, actually, because I'm a big fan of berberine. And you were talking earlier about the blood sugar control of cats and dogs. Is there a concern with berberine lowering their blood sugar too much? Like, do cats and dogs get hypoglycemic? Not generally, no. It, it doesn't seem like it's really a problem for them. You know, so I'm not, I'm not really super concerned about that. And, you know, the nice thing about berberine in the, in the sort of hallmark of longevity perspective is it's, you know, it's one of those herbs that really, really has an impact on AMPK. And in that, you know, in the sort of the whole, we're trying to balance AMPK and mTOR to our greatest, to our greatest benefit. You know, that's, that's, there is something to be said for that. But, but to your point, no, I don't think hypoglycemia is generally an issue with these guys. Okay. Awesome. And again, listeners get the books because there's a lot of information in there. So these are just my random nuanced questions. I'm really curious about vitamin D because you talk about the role of vitamin D deficiency in our pets. And we know that's a huge issue in humans. What I'm really curious about, and again, this goes back to the evolution of them. So they have fur. So do they make vitamin D at all? And if not, or if only a little bit evolutionarily, how do they survive? So like uh, wild, non-domesticated cats and dogs, do they have vitamin D deficiency? I don't know for certain if there is really an incidence of vitamin D deficiency in wild dogs and cats. I'm not sure that that's been looked at. But to your other question, no, they do not convert sunlight into vitamin D like we do, hence the whole fur thing. So vitamin D is a dietary issue with dogs and cats. So, you know, vitamin D, probably the, you know, the, the, the biggest sources of vitamin D are animal sources, bone, fur, skin, these sorts of things contain loads of vitamin D that your average carnivore would be consuming. You know, one of the things that I bring up in the book is I love a good diagnostic test. I love it when I can measure a parameter that has an impact on longevity. And vitamin D is one of these things we can measure. And it's fascinating to me how many animals, even ones that I thought were eating really solid diets, are actually deficient in vitamin D. But the great news is, is it's a thing we can measure and it's a thing we can fix. You can very easily supplement vitamin D. It's not a hard thing to do. And because we can measure it, we can quantify exactly how much we need to give them. And to be clear, vitamin D is one of these vitamins you absolutely can over supplement. So while certainly like somebody could give a multivitamin with a conservative amount of vitamin D in it and be safe, if you're sort of definitively trying to optimize vitamin D levels. That is something that you want to keep tabs on their vitamin D level in their blood on because over supplementing with vitamin D can cause some pretty serious problems. Okay. Okay. I'm glad you brought up the testing because that is an overwhelmingly eye-opening part of your book. I was blown away by all of these different tests, a lot of them in humans, but also a lot of them for cats and or dogs as well. So there's so many to go into in depth, but when it comes to testing, longevity testing, I guess, what are the, some of the ones that you are most excited about? Testing wise, I mean, like I say, I mean, I, you know, vitamin D testing makes me super happy. Omega fatty acid testing, I love to do because again, it's a really easy thing to fix and a lot of animals are deficient. 
There's a company that I'm working with now in Southern California that is doing epigenetic age testing in animals, which I like a lot. Epigenetic age testing, to me, what it really is useful for is it's a measuring stick for how well my treatments are working. You know, it's not, I'm not as concerned about like what the number is from the standpoint of like, if my patient is chronologically 10 years old, if the epigenetic age testing comes back as nine or 11 on the first test, I mean, it's, it's interesting information, but it's less important than what happens when I get the next test back six months or a year later after we've been treating the animal to see if that number has gone up, down, or is the same. Because that's a measure of how well we've been doing treatment-wise. And also, speaking of the future of all of this, it was perfect timing. I was reading your book, and I don't know why, but the main health editor for Fox Digital, who publishes all the like Fox Health stories, she really likes quoting me now. So she had me in, I think, eight stories last year. And one of the stories was about the future of healthcare, and she wanted my predictions about healthcare. And so I included, because I was reading your book, and you talk about the future of wearables in pets. So I was able to share that with her. So I'm so interested in this. What are we seeing with wearables and pets? And where do you think that's going? I mean, personally for humans, like I love my Oura ring and I wear CGMs. And so what do you think will happen there? It's fascinating that you asked that question. And I, I sort of intentionally did not I didn't put it in the book because I, I, I didn't want to give people the wrong impression, but this is actually something that I have personally been working on. I have a company that I've started. It's called Petmetrics, and we are in the process of creating a wearable for animals that you know would be useful both from the standpoint of like monitoring your pet's parameters at home just in the same way that your Aura Ring does, but also as like a, like an inpatient veterinary tool to monitor vital signs and whatnot in a, you know, sort of non-contact way, like, you know, lay an animal on a mat and you'll get their vital signs without connecting them to any, any, you know, cables or connections or anything to that effect. That is actually something that I am actively working on. You know, hopefully we're going to start to have products launched late this year or early next. Oh, wow. That's like Star Trek with the... <laughs> laying on the the mat. I know, right? It's super exciting. And, you know, the, the company that we're partnering with, I mean, they have some absolutely groundbreaking technology that is going to be coming out on the human sector as well. It's just a it's just a quicker pathway to get it done in animals because of the, you know, FDA regulations and whatnot. It's a great proving ground. Something you point out in the book that I hadn't really thought about before was our pets can't really communicate to us out their health situation, like how they're feeling. And then on the flip side, not only do they not communicate to us, you make the case that they sort of lie to us. They might try to make it seem like they are not feeling a certain way. So those wearables, and maybe I understand that it's not out yet, so maybe it's um, a secret, but is it something that you can put, you mentioned the ones where they go on the map, but like at home, something they wear on the outside? Yeah, yeah. So, I, I, I mean, I think there'll be a, a couple of potential formats. Certainly, there will be a, a pet bed, but there'll also be something that the animal can wear, like a collar or a harness that would monitor vital signs, activity, a number of other parameters as well, and then all sort of be reported to you through an app in much the same way like your Aura Ring does. 
That is so cool. Ooh, definitely keep us updated on that. Yeah, I certainly will. And and if people are interested, there's not much on the website now, but petmetrics.com, you can sign up to get on our list to get more information as that comes out. Awesome. Okay. I will be eagerly following that. Well, there are so many other topics in the book. I will definitely, again, refer listeners. Like we didn't even, I don't know if you want to touch on it now or we can just let listeners read it, like whether or not you should spay or neuter. You talk about vaccines, which is huge. And now I've gotten this podcast on the radar because I said that word. Um, (laughs) And then we've got, again, more about exercise and there's just so much. So they're really, really valuable resources. Oh, this actually is one question. This was an interesting experience prepping for this show because it was the first time, it wasn't the first time reading multiple books by an author, but it was the first time reading two books that are very similar. So I actually would like read one chapter of one book and then I would read the other chapter of the other book and see what I missed. So if people have cats and dogs, do they definitely need to get both versions of the book? Yeah, that's a that's a great question. And I'll, I'll preface this by saying that it was it was originally my intent to write one book for dogs and cats as as a single book. The publisher wanted it in two separate volumes. So that was that was how that happened. I would say the books are probably about 75% the same, but there are very definitive differences in sort of you know, physiologic necessities, you know, nutrition, certain supplements as it pertains to cats. So, I mean, if you want to get the overview, I think you could just get one of them. If you really want the deep dive into what to do for your dog versus your cat, you might wind up with both. They do exist as audiobooks as well, if that's easier. Okay. Awesome. And are you writing your next book or are you focusing on your, your products? I am not yet. I'm, I'm, I'm kind of really focusing on pet metrics to, to get that launched. That's, that's kind of the next, the next big thing for me. That completely makes sense. Awesome. So, well, speaking of your product line, so your ultimate pet nutrition product line, what products do you make with that? Sure. So ultimate pet nutrition is really about whole food, both food and supplements for dogs and cats. So we have freeze-dried raw foods for dogs and cats We've got general health supplements as well as supplements that are designed kind of for like specific medical conditions such as inflammation, skin-related issues, these sorts of things. Awesome. Do you have a, a bestseller with the supplements, like something that everybody just loves? From a supplement perspective, I mean, clearly the, like the cornerstone supplement is called NutraThrive. It's, it's a really, it's sort of a, just a really broad-based health supportive, immune system supportive supplement. You can, you can add it to any food, whether it's kibble or whether it's a fresh whole food diet, you're still going to be adding an enormous amount of beneficial nutrition to your pet. You know, and like I say, regardless of what you're feeding them, it's going to be helpful. Awesome. Okay. So for listeners, if you would like to get that or anything else at the Ultimate Pet Nutrition store, you can use the coupon code HEALTHYPET40 to get 40% off, which is Amazing. And what is the the website for that, the link? The website is ultimatepetnutrition.com. Oh, wow. You snagged it. (laughs) You got the the domain. And then we also, Dr. Richter is so nice. We're actually going to do a giveaway for his books. So there will be details about that on my Instagram, Melanie Avalon. So check that out the week this airs and we will be doing a giveaway. So thank you so much for that. So the last question that I ask every single guest on this show 
And it's just because I realize more and more each day how important mindset is. Oh, and that is something, by the way, friends, there's a lot in the books about your pets, if they have anxiety and how to deal with stress and trauma and all of that. So definitely check out the books for that. But my question for you is what is something that you're grateful for? What is something that I am grateful for? Well, it's such a, such a timely question on January 2nd. I am incredibly grateful for the support that I get in my life from my family, my friends, my professional colleagues. I mean, you know, I, I mean, I feel like, I really feel like I'm on a mission to, to create a better world for animals and animal healthcare. And I am very much not doing this alone. And there's enormous amount of people out there doing the same thing and with the same mission. And we're all helping one another. And I am incredibly grateful for that. Well, thank you so much. I am so incredibly grateful for your work. Reading your books, I was like, oh, thank goodness somebody is talking about this and doing this. And we didn't even talk about stem cells, but you mentioned in the book, were you one of the first vets to do stem cells? Is that controversial? Well, not not stem cells writ large, but there is a particular type of stem cell therapy that we're doing that really is cutting edge and new in veterinary medicine. Uh, it's called V-cell therapy. So, uh, so yeah, so there is, there is some new and very exciting stuff coming. Well, so amazing. Again, thank you so much for your work. People's pets are just so important for their lives, for their health, their happiness. And it's just so important, I think, that we you know, pay attention to all of this. And so few people are actually spreading awareness about this. So thank you so much. I so enjoyed this conversation. I look forward to your, your wearables and all the testing and the products that you're creating. So hopefully we can talk again in the future. I love it. Thank you so much for having me. I can't wait. Thanks. Bye. Bye. Thank you so much for listening to the Melanie Avalon Biohacking Podcast. For more information, you can check out my book, What Win Wine, Lose Weight and Feel Great with Paleo-Style Meals, Intermittent Fasting, and Wine, as well as my blog, MelanieAvalon.com. Feel free to contact me at podcast at MelanieAvalon.com. And always remember, you got this.